0: Jack Donovan, and I'm here with Stevie Robertson, and uh, you are listening to or watching Pater, the Journal of Solar Culture. I'm going to try to turn the sound. There we go. All right. I'm going to have to figure that out later. But uh, anyway, today we are going to be talking about, uh, this is our first live show, and we're going to do a live series now uh, every week uh, where we dig into different issues from a solar idealist perspective. And the first show, we wanted to start with a series called uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, um, which is a series by John Vervecki. He's, a, I think, a cognitive scientist, uh, but also a Buddhist. And so there are some things there. Uh, and uh, But it's an interesting jumping off point. And I think that's what it's going to serve as for this conversation. It's going to be an interesting jumping off point for us. And to talk about different ideas. And, and uh, there, there are a lot of good questions there. And there are a lot of good points that he makes. And th- crossovers and points where we agree and disagree. Because there actually is a meaning crisis. And I don't think that that's wrong. Uh, I definitely think that everybody's looking for meaning. And what it, really, solar idealism, I created in a way to be an answer to that. I, it can't be all the answers because I don't think that whatever 8 billion people are ever going to agree on all the same thing. I, I think that that is in conflict with human nature itself uh, to do that. So it's not going to be the right answer for everybody. But I think it is an answer, a source of meaning. Um, and so that that's, I think, why I think this is very relevant. Uh, because we things that I've talked about, whether it's the, the Nietzschean death of God. Or just this idea of being, as the graphic we used for the show is kind of floating in outer space without any, without being tethered to anything. Uh, the real sense of what chaos is, what what is meaning, what is where where is my center point, and uh, that's really the function of I think even ritual in the order of fire. Uh, so, I guess we'll start off and t- start talking about some of the topics in the show and kind of going back and forth about what. We uh, think about them. Uh, we've, you know, we had to actually stop from blowing a whole load because we were starting to talk about it already today in Telegram, and uh, <laughs> we had to say, "Okay, stop, stop, it's for the show." Uh, so there's just so much here, and 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 Chris is a far more generous and uh, curious man than I am. Uh, I made it through to episode three, which I think is about good as a recommendation. Um, he made it a little bit further. <laughs> I, I was like, "Okay, I'm good." Uh, but uh, you know, it's like I said, a lot of good, interesting ideas, and uh, obviously a very educated guy. And so, uh, so basically, I think I wrote some notes here. What it talks about is the, a sense of uh, nihilism, futility, abandonment, and trust of institutions of political legal systems, and the abandonment of religious affiliation, uh, which is again, I think, just an ongoing thing from the Nietzschean "Death of God" kind of argument. And I actually had to look up when he recorded it because it was actually January uh, 2019, um, which is a big factor uh, because that means this. Actually, he was doing this actually before the uh, big 2020 nonsense and everything that, if if he thought that people were giving up on institutions in uh, January 2019 like he was not ready for what was coming <laughs> right. because there's a lot more there's a lot less trust i think in institutions now and but one of the things that struck me about the way he said that is he seemed to suggest that trust in institutions and so forth was directly related to well-being like he seemed to suggest that like that, if we don't trust institutions, that we don't have meaning, you know, and I don't know that he would actually say that now or whatever. But I, I just, that was one of, the, one of the first things that I noticed, that it seemed to be like, we don't trust our institutions, therefore, there's a meaning crisis. And uh, that's that that is true to a certain extent. But I think maybe that we were spoiled. Um, You know, in, in the America I grew up in, I actually did trust the institutions to a certain degree. And if you, you always knew that the government was probably doing something bad, but you figured uh, journalists were going to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're at quite quite the opposite uh, situation. Right. Uh, but I mean, you were because I mean, all the all the uh, you know the big Hollywood movies that were like documentaries and things were all about like some journalists, some plucky journalists, going in and and figuring it out, and the government's cheating us or whatever, or, or, or like uh, killing people or whatever. And, uh, you know, and that's just not a sense anymore. But I think that maybe that was a a weird patch in history that people actually believe that the government was constantly doing good. Do you think, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that they were, that people have normally believed that their government was righteous? Well, I mean,
1: maybe not righteous, but um, if the government is composed of sellouts and bastards, then at least they're our sellouts and bastards, right? Like that's the... That's the ideal. I don't think there's anyone who would look on, say, Andrew Jackson as a president and see that—that is a Christian moral individual, right there. Mm -hmm. But glad he was on our side, you know. uh, (laughs) You know, as far as generals and soldiers and leaders go, I'm sure people might have felt similarly about Napoleon Napoleon or Julius Caesar or these kinds of people. They, They would at least think if the government isn't good they're at least sort of for us and i think there was probably an idea early in america that um of identification with the government and if the government is corrupt it is only maybe a reflection of our own corruption at some moral level perhaps um but there seems to be and i think the the credit has to go to um charles murray more than anyone else in recognizing decades ago the increasing separation, the the bifurcation of America. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's written more about that and more articulately about that. And yeah, the book, book was book called "Coming Apart," right? Yes, okay. it, it's it's one I've I actually glanced through a couple months ago for some. Data on marriage stuff, but I haven't actually read it properly. But it's extremely well researched and uh, written, and extremely underread, I think. And there is a, I think for me, this happened under the Obama administration, and it wasn't even Obama. It was a, um, it was another um, individual, sort of in not his cabinet, but sort of an informal advisor named Jonathan Gruber. Was an economics professor mm-hmm. who was talking about the importance of for for Obamacare writing bills in a tortured manner in order to get it classified as a uh, ta- as a tax or not as a tax in in some categories so that people wouldn't know what they were looking at, and he said, "Call it the stupidity of the American people. Call it." Uh, people being misinformed, but I'd rather have the bill passed than not. And there's a kind of contempt, I think, that was brought into the open, into the public in that moment, because he was caught on a hot mic in like two or three different instances saying similar versions of of that sentiment. Mm -hmm. And you see it in in other kinds of um, managerial um, leaders who think the public need to be psychologically guided in the in the right direction, not just in matters of war but in matters of domestic policy too. And it, and it it really when you when you feel that, you feel the separation from your government. you feel, oh this is not this is not representative anymore. this is I' I'm, I'm a sheep being herded uh, through fences for some purpose that is ostensibly for my benefit. But if it wasn't, I wouldn't know.
0: You know, how would you um, know? I mean, uh, how it, would I know? Especially, yeah. especially when you get to the, the you know, the uh, all the op- ops like you know, Project Mockingbird and all the all the things where they're actually like fe- feeding the news things, and uh, that's yeah. I mean, like, where, what what would your opinion be based on? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> you know, but, and it's interesting what you said earlier about um, mm-hmm. you know we are without meaning. Mm-hmm. This is Verveci kind of implying this uh without faith in our institutions i think the the point is illustrated i think or is articulated best by another extremely underrated book uh called kindly inquisitors by jonathan Rausch. i first read this back in like 2012 mm-hmm. or so it was it's a phenomenal little book very short book It's the best articulation of the, the best defense of classical liberalism i've heard and basically, Rausch argues that um, science, democracy, and free markets are all three versions of the same thing. They're all three versions of a system for resolving disputes, and that the institutions that we have are the guides for and the mechanism by which we resolve disputes without violence. And if those institutions go away, then everything collapses and we, we go, it, it's like the, uh, it's like what the old Protestants feared. Like if people stopped being Christian, then there'd be like murder in the streets. People wouldn't know right from wrong. And it would be,
0: you know, Leviathan, like, yeah. uh, like right. a, a war of all against all.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The the state of war. Yeah. Hobbes wrote it. But, um, and I mean, you see this, uh, deep emotional attachment to um institutions from all kinds of interesting people uh sam harris is i think my favorite example because his his um opposition to trump is a, a, a i feel like we're getting really into the weeds with politics but it does springboard into some deeper subjects but mm-hmm. um like sam harris is a, a big a big critic we'll say of trump and but he, and he'll come up with all kinds of reasons for it, but at the root of it all, and I think he said this explicitly a couple of times, is he felt that Trump was a threat to the institutions. Right. And for people like Sam Harris and other people who who accept this uh, sort of Jonathan Roush's view, and also I think Steven Pinker's view and a few others, um, a threat to the institutions, even a criticism of the institutions feels like an existential threat against civilization itself and so it is interesting to see as as you pointed out these lectures by verveki came out like years ago um, what suddenly goes viral it, it's sort of um it's sort of odd to see like wh- why is it going viral now
0: I mean um, is it I, I don't know I literally list one person, posted it to their uh, x feed and i was like i'll look into that crisis of meaning that seems like something and then, and then i sent it to you and, and i was like tell me if you think this is worth watching because you listen to these stuff all the time oh, And you were uh, like oh, okay so about, i don't know is uh, it i mean obviously it has a lot of views well about yeah. the time you
1: sent it to me oh. uh there was another acquaintance of mine on instagram not on x who oh. was posting about this oh okay so, so it does seem to be popping up in multiple different places, and maybe he picked it up from the same source on X or whatever. But, um, um it, but I mean, the point sort of holds with uh, someone like Jordan Peterson as well, who's also talking about maps of meaning. You know, it's this, this, this attachment of meaning to institutions. Now, Jordan Peterson, I wouldn't say, is an institutionalist in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, He's certainly not necessarily a Buddhist in the same way he leans a little bit more Christian but he's not a Christian either um, which is funny but uh, you you see this sort of attachment of meaning to civic institutions um, in a, a number of intellectuals and, and with a lot of people uh, at a at a more basic level I think
0: right. Well, there's a sense that I think, for a lot of these people, a when you're talking about the institutions, you're talking about a certain college-educated class of people that um, have invested deeply and expensively in many cases. In in that, that's their whole identity comes from. I have a I have these letters behind my name, and this is that's that's what makes me a valid person, and employable, and all these other things. And so they're deeply invested in that as a as. If faith in that falls apart, a part of their identity falls apart. So there, there's that. But there's also a sense of you know when you were saying, uh, fear of like the the institution, uh, lack of faith in it. It almost sounded like popery, uh, like uh, like the, like the heresy. Like we can't we can't stop believing this. Otherwise, what will happen? And also, I see that in normal people as well, a- a- everyday people. That's scary. No one wants to deal with that. Like, if, if if there are the people who are like the conspiracy theory people, uh, which we have to put in quotations at this point, but uh, people who are addicted to like truth telling, like I know the secret truth, and that's one thing, and that's kind of an addiction of its own. And then there's also people who. I just want to deal with it and believe that everything's going to be okay and that everything's working right and it's going to be fine because otherwise, I can't deal with that mess that yeah. <laughs> that, that that comes with every like all the underpinnings of and this is what we get into. When we talk about uh, I've I've written about this and I'm sure you have too uh, when you talk about it to, to Christians and like uh, they look a lot a lot of the return to Christianity to the extent that it's even happening. Uh, which is, I think, overblown. But um, a lot of the return to Christianity is, is, all these guys will always argue with you like, I need a, a source of objective truth. Otherwise, nothing means anything and everything is a mess and I'm confused about everything in life. And that's that's what draws a lot of those people to it. And so I think the same thing with the institutions. They're like, this has to work because otherwise, uh, like, what does it mean to th- say, I don't believe that the law works, you know, or, <laughs> or is
1: just <laughs> one of my favorite Sam Harris quotes mm-hmm. from this was a couple years ago, and um, he was being criticized by someone for having gotten the essence of a story wrong, and he got the essence of a story wrong. I don't remember what the story was, it's probably like it's probably six or seven examples of this at this point, but um he'd gotten the the gist of a story wrong because he believed the new york times and he was respond people were saying you keep getting things wrong because you believe the news and he's like well i understand that the news is wrong and even that the news is dishonest sometimes but you have to get news from somewhere and that sentiment right there, I think gets to the heart of it. And th- there, there's this, this deep desire, and maybe we can get into the psychology of this, mm-hmm. uh, to find someone else who will be responsible for when we get things wrong. Like he didn't want to be responsible for having chosen the New York Times as a source. And the New York Times has this air of legitimacy. Right. So if you, if you believe the New York Times and the New York Times is wrong, that's 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 their fault. It's not your fault. You trusted the legitimate news source. It's it's their fault. But if you go out and do your own research, and you go hunt around through a bunch of not legitimate news sources, maybe even misinformation sources, and you try to parse out the the wheat from the shaft, the good from the bad, and you get things sometimes right, but you also get things sometimes wrong. On those points that you get wrong you will be held, you will be held responsible by society because you deviated from the legitimate source. So there's this, this social pressure, this asymmetry and responsibility. Um, I think that is pushing people uh, to, to um, legitimacy. And, and it's a word I'm not putting in scare quotes to mock the term, but to to emphasize the power of that word, because legitimacy is a very interesting um, social phenomenon when you think about it. But it's very powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it is a way to defer responsibility or to to project responsibility elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I've often said, you know, like that's the same thing as like saying I have God in my pocket. You know, like uh, you know, like well, God says this wrong. Well, you don't have to say that you hate this person and what they're doing is wrong. Because God says it, right? And that's 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 someone behind you that is making that decision that you aren't now responsible for. I'm just doing God's work. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm executing you for God. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know? and replace yeah. God with
1: science, and the 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 sentiments and the dynamic works exactly the same way. Exactly. Do you not, do you not follow the science?
0: Like, yeah. I mean, this is the consensus. This yeah. is the consensus is is what we're doing. You know. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I think that you know. without, we should jump off into the, the meat of the discussion uh, right? In, in terms of, I mean, it really, we should defer it to later, but I think this is where we deal with the question of what is meaning, because we were talking about this today. And that's, if you're going to talk about a meaning crisis, what are you talking about with meaning? And he, he doesn't, he might get to this like far, far later into the lectures, but like he really doesn't like jump into that too much. I mean, he, he says. I wrote down that he said, "Wisdom is realizing meaning in life." And I'm like, okay, I, I that doesn't mean anything that I know. Um, yeah. And and how, how do we? Okay. And I think that's again the, kind of the Buddhist thing creeping in, like the enlightenment and awakening, like realizing meaning, like or or you could also use realize that maybe he's using it in a sense of like to make real, um, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's always tricky when these people use words
1: in very non-standard fashions. I mean, the, he keeps focusing on, um, you know, this idea of waking up and he talks about the as- the axial age, the axial revolution, which he, yeah. he borrows explicitly from Carl Jaspers, mm-hmm. who I had to do a little bit of reading about after he mentioned that. Um, Carl Jasper's interestingly enough is also a classical liberal but uh in the in the school of Max Weber but uh less nationalist and more um cosmopolitan. So, mm. you know, it's on brand. But regardless, um you know, he's trying to, to tie waking up and being being woke before it became progressive maybe. Right. Um uh, with these uh institutions perhaps but but also uh th- this this, um, either the realization of meaning or perhaps the necessity of meaning seems to come along with this process of waking up, which to, to me just sounds like self consciousness. And, um, it is interesting because my introduction to philosophy when I was in like middle school, my dad was saying, Oh, you can go to philosophy, you, you can answer the question, What is the meaning of life? And he thought it was a, it was a kind of a, a clever gotcha because you can't possibly answer it. Right. But of course, if you disambiguate a uh, meaning mm-hmm. and say, well, meaning could mean, what is the meaning of meaning in this case? Do, do you mean what is the semantic connotation of life? We, we can consult a dictionary for that. Yeah. Do you mean what is the value of life or, or, uh, do you need, mean what is the uh significance of life or what is the purpose of life and any any of those sort of clarifications gives you a road to go down but so long as you're holding back in meaning and th- this word meaning has so many different possible valences so many possible uh connotations or implications that there's this feeling of of awe and, um, and and profundity that really goes away once once you once you disambiguate it. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and thanks for setting it up for me. But uh, it, as I said earlier, I think that meaning what people are really saying when they are searching for meaning in life is that they're searching for a narrative structure, right, in in their life that explains things. And he talks about that a little bit. In terms of meaning, he—I think he wrote—meaning uh, is like a sentence that has to fit together in a particular particular way to make things make sense. Is something he said in lectures, and that's a hundred percent true. And and I think that we we have to have this narrative structure, and that's really what myth is. And he talks a little bit about that as well, in, in a good way. Um, you know, if you say, as we talked about for say Christians or whatever, you have like the Bible, and that that is a narrative structure that says what is right and what is wrong and how the world works and, and when it started and when it ended and, and how many generations there were and all, and the dinosaurs aren't real and, or whatever. But it says you know all these things and this is your reality. And if you accept that that's your reality, then your life makes sense. And yeah. then your life has meaning. And that's really, I think, what they're doing. And the same thing with any other religion. It's not only Christianity can do that. I mean, I think that if uh, you would have asked someone in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, you know, like, oh, well, well, clearly Shamash is in the sky and, and and you know, like the, all the different, uh, you know, sky gods and so forth. And, the, you know, this person makes rules and puts them on a tablet. And this is this is how the world works. And you would have had that in any society. Um, you know, it, it, obviously, we, we talk a lot about ancient Greek society. It's like, well, there is a meaning and a structure like this is this is you know, when it started. This is, you know, what's where it's going or whatever, how how things are explained Zeus is mad at you yeah Uh, you know someone didn't one of the gods didn't take your side in the conflict you know there's all this structure for that. this applies this meaning and he's very right in saying it probably goes back to like people doing ritual and magic and and so forth like what happens when people die I mean people want explanations for things and once they have them then they can say okay that's enough for me and and it doesn't have to be a lot sometimes you know it doesn't have to be a lot it's just like give me something that uh, is some center point. And that's what I've talked about a lot about uh, creating an axis uh, is uh, what's your center point. Where are you? What are your like non-negotiables for reality? Yeah. Well, and, and that foundation, that, that story
1: also makes act taking action meaningful because if you don't know what story you're a part in, what, what is the nature of the life I'm occupying? Like what's the point of doing anything almost? Because, it's it's just random. It d- does it, it, is Andrew Tate is he a one off? Or if I hustle like that, will I become like him? Or will I be selling Cutco knives door to door instead? Yeah. <laughs> like like it, like, what are the rules of the game that we're playing? And the rules are inferred from the story that makes sense of our world. But what is valued? And and because without that kind of story that you're talking about, and maybe the this this would be the, what is the significance of life answer. You could probably phrase it different ways, but um, version of the disambiguation. But like it, once you understand the game you're playing, then you can play and you can maximize in one direction or in another, or try to to come up with some plan of living a good life. But without some understanding of the story that you're a part of, it's hard to figure out how to make meaningful moves in life. And uh, maybe maybe that's what people are going for. I, I didn't get the sense that that was the sense of the term meaning that he was talking about, but it could be. Uh,
0: I only got to lecture seven or so where he starts talking about. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that that's what he's talking about at all. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that he has a different idea of what this is. Um, but, uh, I think that that's what makes the most sense for me is that, like you said, a story, what story are you in? And then if you know what story you're in, then you get kind of like, uh, what is honorable? Like what's an honorable action? How can I take an honorable action if I don't know what honorable is? Right. What's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Well, like who do I look? And that's, I mean, he says a lot of good things about the humans being obviously social animals, and uh, you, you kind of need other people to have some kind of feedback on what that is. Uh, and that's part of being part of a modern disconnected society that doesn't have that feedback necessarily. You just get it through the media or through the news or whatever, what is good. And I've always said the, Code of, the empire of nothing thing. They want us to not really know what's, to not have an anchor. Because if you don't have that story or the specific edit, there is really no right and wrong. It's just whatever's in flux, like whatever's happening right now, and they can keep you off balance and kind of confused.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and that's why at least you have like, you know, to their credit, I think, you know, a lot of the like, Christians and so forth in con- their country, they know where their nos and yeses are. Yes. And not Now there are many different versions of them and they have, they all fight, but like uh, they, they do have like, this is wrong. <laughs> we can't, we can't do this. This is wrong. Um, and so at least they have some kind of steady point, And that's why the, I think the system hates that because you no, know, we're going to determine where the point is. To, you know, to, like-
1: to that point, Paul Osborne says in the chat, everyone seems to be searching for an enemy in order to define themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think people sit down and really try to flesh out what they stand for. And I mean, that is a good point, mm-hmm. but some people say and i actually don't have a strong opinion about this carl Mm -hmm. schmidt's the most famous one but um that you can actually develop an identity based in opposition um uh, carl schmidt's thesis is the concept of the political that political political identity at least comes from opposition in that form and if the christians have that strength of of maintaining an identity Part of it is because they've they've they have identified their enemy really really clearly. They know who Satan is, uh, and they know what he is not. And they're going to do the opposite of that. They're we're, we're, Christians are not Satanists. Ident- not in every case, but that's theoretically what they're supposed
0: to be. In theory, yeah. yeah. I get yes. really murky as <laughs> to what that actually means. But right, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyone anyone who does anything I don't like is a demon. Uh, Is what it becomes. But uh, it's but yeah, I mean, that's they they at least they do have, like I said, uh, for whatever good or bad it is, uh, you know, they have the Bible is their center point. That's that's what they go back to for right and wrong. Like that's the that's the thing that they're tethered to. Uh, They can't go. They can only go so far from that. Uh, because, or they have to make a really elaborate, weird explanation of why, which is a lot of what is done. But like, it, it's that they—that's where their reference point is. Uh, the rest of us really don't have a reference point unless you sit down and establish it. Mm-hmm. And as I've always said, uh, uh, you know, being a philosopher is, is hard work—at least a part-time job. And it doesn't pay that well. <laughs> so, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so, it's uh, a very old problem. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. What you said this the Socrates quote: "Like uh, just, you just, you become a philosopher. You have a bad wife or something like <laughs> <laughs>
1: that." Yeah. You, you marry uh, a good woman, you'll be happy. If you marry a bad wife, you'll be a philosopher. Yeah, um, yeah. My so, my favorite philosophy and wealth story is uh, Thales of Miletus, one of the the pre-Socratics. Right. Um, was talking about metaphysics essentially and and other philosophy stuff and someone on the streets of athens said uh, why should anyone listen to you you're poor like why why should anyone pay attention to you and thales was like fair point and he goes out and he, inv- <laughs> yeah. he invents futures trading he does some does some mathematical calculations based on astronomy looking at the sky makes a prediction for the for the coming year uh buys up in advance with what little money he has the rights to all of the olive presses in around town and then like triples the price come olive harvest season um because he buys them f- f- uh ownership of them for that season um and he makes insane amounts of money becomes one of the wealthiest men in athens and then he's like all right point proved and then he goes back to teaching philosophy just 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 to make the point we <laughs> but it wasn't about that right. um, to, for him which is the funny thing um but uh yeah it's um, um what were we talking about before about getting distracted with old philosophers
0: oh no 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 that i think that we were going to we're talking about defining yourself by your enemy and oh yes that's that's what a lot of people do do uh that that's the easiest thing you can do uh, because yeah. you get, you know what you don't like, and also it's a it's a really easy way to bond people. Yeah, right. you, people bond over what they don't like. I mean, if you have ever <laughs> if hung you out like people with work, yeah, the first thing that they'll do is they'll bond about what they're bitching about. You know, like yeah. uh, you know, and it's it's a low form of conversation and it's a low form of bonding. But that's what people do. It, it's easy, and and that's what you see on the internet. And that's why I think uh, we we fight it a little bit with c- coming. From a positive perspective, and this kind of solar angle, in that the more attractive angle and the more viral angle is to like, let's make a meme about what we're angry about today, and you share that a lot. Whereas, like, you know, there's an old story that uh, you know they once created a newspaper called Good News and had good news only. And then it, of course it didn't sell at all because right. no one wanted to read it. Okay. Uh and so it's 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 a little bit like that. There's a little struggle there, but uh obviously, you know, everybody wants to complain about things because that's very much human nature, and gossip uh is very much part of human nature yeah. as well. So it, there's it's a way to go that way, but yeah. There's a way people defend that too by saying, you know, how are we going to improve
1: things if we don't <laughs> this is like a classic leftist talking point, and it it's not even necessarily wrong. Um if you just focus on positive stuff, how are you gonna improve anything?
0: Right. And that's that's um, 100%, why, why wow. would you, let's have a meeting about everything we did right, and then like not ever look at the things we did wrong. Is it right. bad? But, yeah. the, but the
1: danger is, um, if you only look at the th- things that are wrong, which right. many of them do, it can become very easy to black pill yourself and to think everything is screwed when you've just been focusing on only the bad parts. Um, and also, there's a there's a funny danger with oppositionalism, which I guess we could call this identity through opposition, right. um, that you see in like the punk music world, yes, um, which used to be what you might call punk back in the '90s or something. Whatever happened to those punk bands? Did, did it, is it just me, or does it feel like they kind of all went establishment yeah. in the last decade? And and it's it's a it's a funny thing because the there's there's no singular um alternative to a given thesis i this is like my big problem with hegel but we don't need to go that route if 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 you really don't like a there's an infinite possible uh number of opposites to a not a is not therefore b it could also be c or d or e or f or g and so the all these punks who are like yeah f the man right and they were they were effing the man of the eighties and then the man changed. And now they still, they're still thinking about the man of the eighties while they support the the current thing. <laughs> and also like, you know, a, the opposite of one falsehood is not therefore the truth. Exactly. I, I feel like a lot of the guys who came out of the like Norwegian black metal world were like, you yeah, know, it was kind of fun, but what are you doing? You're, you're, not, you're not bringing anything an alternative really right it's just it's just like there's no there there yeah um and i think that is the funny thing about many of these because because i enjoy going down some of the conspiracy theory rabbit holes the flat earth stuff the moon landing didn't happen if any conspiracy theory begins to get enough traction Mm -hmm. you get offshoots of saying the 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 mainstream conspiracy theory is now the psyop I've, I've seen memes for example of like the flat earth with with edges where there's like a waterfall over the edge of the earth at yeah. the, edge of the ocean. they're saying that's that's the psyop and it's like no one is making those up to derail you 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 you're great on your own <laughs> no one
0: no one is trying to <laughs> to what? like <laughs> well, th- those those outsider circles are always circular firing squads you know like they're they're always they always murder each other before <laughs> they murder anybody else like is it they, yeah. they, they're all like vying for like to find something secret and so that that's that's the problem i mean that doesn't mean that none of them are right about anything but it, it does there are there's a personality type there that they're they're just gonna fight about whatever they, they they come up with. I mean, same any kind of like fringe political group. I mean, the left, the far left, and the far right both do it. Uh, they both create these like yes, where they're just going to assassinate each other. I mean, it's it's just when the the middle of one of them gets a lot of power, then you have like some stability. But the far fringes are always mad about everything, and we, they we, like you know, they, they cannot be pleased. I, I feel like we need a term for the far center too, because that's far a- center.
1: <laughs> I think it's called. <laughs> They're fucking basic. <laughs> and they, it, 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 there's a, there's yeah. that same there's that same like purity spiral dynamic in yeah. the center, too, where someone who's like, you know, I, I I I'm not convinced Trump is necessarily evil, or you know, I think you know, there's something to Hillary Clinton's, you know, uh neoconservative foreign policy, or you know, someone who goes ever so slightly right or left on anything it was like oh that's extreme especially on the trump side more so yeah yeah. i'm not i'm not saying that personally about hillary clinton by the way i was trying to come up with an example i know you were
0: you were struggling i was i was seeing you (laughs) how do i make how do i make this this creature (laughs) like like, (laughs) viable (laughs) but uh, um and let's we'll we'll get back to a little bit to these uh topics because there's so much interesting stuff that we um Mm -hmm. we talk about all the time um One of the big things he talks about is like the upper paleolithic and a big transfer it it actually uh connected with something that you had written uh for uh the uh for our site um about shooting Mm. because he made some arguments about projectile weapons require the development of a frontal lobe area and uh i mean didn't you basically say that in another way Uh, like the idea of a shooting as being like the basis of consciousness
1: Yes, and and here you have to delineate consciousness from thinking because it's it's something people very easily confuse. Right. Um, you can you can think and and even think fairly complex thoughts, do basic mathematics or even advanced mathematics without realizing that you're doing it. You know, subconscious pattern recognition is a classic example. of That um, consciousness is awareness of the self. Uh, like awareness of yourself as an agent in the world rather than just being in the flow state all the time. Right. And, um, I mean, Ed and I wrote that because we, we started writing it because we realized that both the, um, the Greek and the Sanskrit and the, um, Aramaic or Jewish, I I forget which Semitic language it was. Um, word for uh, sin Mm. uh, is to miss, to miss the mark. It's a a shooting metaphor explicitly. Mm -hmm. And like Greek and Sanskrit, okay, those those are both Indo-European languages, but the Semitic languages are not. And so it seems like either these two groups independently associated uh, shooting with morality and morality as distinct from virtue uh, distinguished by agency and the experience of agency. Someone could be excellent or bad, you know, in the virtue sense of the term and have no control over it. If someone's just genetically born strong, their strength is still a virtue, but it's not a moral virtue because they didn't right. choose that. So moral virtue is based on the recognition of your choice and your ability to do otherwise. And, um, it was etymologically connected with shooting, which we thought was interesting. And there's, there's stories that Ed and I both dredged up from, from Greece and from, um, India, uh, very ancient stories, very similar, um, between, uh, our Ar- Arjuna and Odysseus. And there are a couple others that seem to tie moral virtue to, to shooting directly. But there was also some studies that I stumbled across, um, about uh, the experience of agency and how um, our perception of time changes based on uh, how how high agency we're feeling. So the, these test uh, neuroscientists would uh, put people in a team sport where they were made to lose a sport because of actions their teammates did. So low agency experience. And then they had to hit a button and, estimate the amount of time that passed before a tone sounded and it was like 0.2 milliseconds or or something like or maybe it was two milliseconds i i don't remember the exact details but they would consistently overestimate the time when they hit the button to the tone when they were in feelings of low agency however if they were in a team sport and their team won and their team won because of stuff they did they're they're induced into a higher state of agency of control over their environment. They would hit the button and the tone would sound at the exact same amount of time. They would underestimate that time gap, which the neuroscientists interpreted as a stronger connection between the feeling of their action and outcomes in the world, which is a very, I thought, very clever way of measuring agency and it just occurred to me and there's no hard evidence for this. This is very speculative, but uh, what kinds of actions would paleolithic humans have been doing that involves an action, an outcome from their action with a small, but noticeable time gap Mm -hmm. between those two shooting comes to mind, perhaps throwing as well. Um, The, it, there's probably s- some work people could do on thinking about the, the significance or perhaps insignificance of the difference between shooting and throwing. But it, it seems like there's something significant in the development of the sense of agency from, um, you know, the, 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 the self that emerges in that tiny time gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it would make sense if that is why we seem to so consistently associate morality with shooting metaphors in our language.
0: Yeah he, he bring, I think he brought up uh, the words object and project and things like that but they're all related to throwing and shooting and it's, mm. it is all these metaphors that we talk and that was a big uh, discussion uh, in the podcast as well is how powerful metaphor is and I think we'll you probably have yes. some more to say about that. A minute, but I think that the next thing he got into was shamanism. He kind of went on a big um talk about shamanism. And interestingly, I, I'm I'm I am i i have not booked it yet, but uh we had a guy who was interested in the Order of Fire who is actually, I believe, studying to be a shaman in like in Mongolia, like where it's real. Not like not like he's Trey that's a drug dealer. Like it's no, it's like he like he like he's actually like out there banging drums in Mongolia with like the guys who the, from where the word shaman comes from. right? Uh, so uh, I, I'm really interested in, we might be able to talk to him and, to, and get his perspective. My perspective of it always came from the uh, uh, Mirzi Iliata uh, book on shamanism. And so whenever, whenever I see it used kind of casually, as uh, uh, John Varecki kind of uses it very casually, and he uses it in a way that I think is more consistent with the word priest.
1: Right. I I was gonna say he used it very broadly. And I think yeah. his, what he's describing includes shamans but isn't quite limited
0: to them. Yeah, because shamanism is a specific thing. And uh and uh, doesn't always involve necessarily even what he's talking about. But uh, yeah, the the idea of this guy who does magic, I do think there's a point to that. I I've had a theory, I think, for a long time, that you know, there's a collection of traits that produced artists and priests. Like not that there's a gene for it cause that's kind of an old way of thinking. Like there must be something that turns that on but that there's a collection of traits that go together when they're, to, and, and obviously some nurture in there as well like some experiences and self perceptions and things like that. But uh, the, the people, poets, priests, artists, the musicians on a certain level are all kind of the same thing. And it's just where the outlet goes that, you know, they, they, he talks about the priest getting into a state, a different state, or the shaman getting into a different state. And he makes a lot of a big deal, very big deal about that. And I think that that's, from my own experiences, and I can only work from my own experiences, because I kind of also have this role. And this is also kind of part of something I've done a lot, is that actually your role is to create a state change for other people. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that's actually what those guys do. They may yes, they may be in a state or whatever, get, get some, like, there's certainly guys who do that. Um, but I think that if you do it enough, it, it, you see the state in other people and you you learn to direct that. And that's kind of what you're doing. I mean, that's what priests do. I mean, the priests are like, well, I need you get to get from A to B. And so this is how we can get you there. We can create this environment where that's going to happen. And the same thing, I mean, music. Music does that, you know, like in its own way, uh, yeah. creates a, it, emotions out of nowhere. And one of the things I think I think it was in this lecture or no, it was in that other book on hum, human universals that I'm reading. Um, it, you know, that I think it's been tested that like sounds produce the same emotions in people all around the world it's a weird thing that is isn't part of the human universal like palette of sounds. Like you can hear like the is going to make everybody sad, you know, like there's a, there's a certain universality to that. Uh, But I think as far as like the, the shaman role, I think you are directing people into a different state. Um, And I think, so that that's, I I think I don't want to say that it's always a show um, because I don't want to be that cynical, but I think there's a lot of, priest things that people do to you need to see that this happens like you you need to see this because it's part of your experience you know the thing that the magician does is part of your experience it's not part of his his is a different experience because you have to be like i always say when you're running ritual it's operational like what am i doing like what am i like there's things need to happen like stuff like I'm concentrating the other people can be there and yeah and get and they can they can receive it you know I think it's same with like playing music yeah you can get in the zone with it whatever um yeah I mean I'm obviously not a musician but uh things that I mean uh when I did invocation of the storm like I did that a thousand times in my car and still do it to this day and uh I can get there every time <laughs> like, <laughs> by the end I'm, sh- I'm screaming. Uh, so like it, it, you can, you can get there. It's part of your experience, but it's also part of delivering that experience to the other people as well.
1: The the musical connection is an interesting one. I remember listening to um, Christopher Hitchens being asked why he didn't write novels, why he never tried his hand at that. And he says, I, I don't have it in me. He says, I know the good novelists. And the thing that motivates good novelists is not an idea but a kind of musicality and I can't remember if he was talking about Salman Rushdie or talking about someone else but he's like they're unusually musical people the people who write novels Mm. and if I remember correctly Friedrich Nietzsche said something very similar about how um, I can't remember if it was Scheller or another famous German poet who said the thing that motivated them was not a certain phrase or anything but a certain musical mood was how it was translated mm-hmm. and um i sort of so to that point and i'm sure you didn't hear either of those in your head before answering this. someone asked in one of your q and a's like what's the one uh, absolutely essential part of any ritual and you said oh it's drums uh <laughs> every time. <Absolutely. laughs> <You gotta, Yeah. laughs>
0: originals without drums are boring. I, mean, I yeah. mean, you could substitute with some other kind of music, but like drums, right. drums are really important.
1: <laughs> uh, like there's a, there's a Terrence McKenna quote, or he says, if you're not doing drugs, you're not a real shaman. But I have heard so many accounts from anthropologists and other people saying, there's actually like a wide range of techniques used to reach these trans like states and just not, not drumming for like five or 10 minutes, but, or, but drumming or chanting or both for hours on end can also bring you into a hallucinogenic, uh, state even, or at least a, a trans like altered state for, for sure. And these two things are not mutually exclusive necessarily, but, um, sleep deprivation was another one, but, uh, Drums go a
0: long way. Yeah, drums go a long way. I mean, they create this created environment. It's musical. It creates it creates a soundscape. Is there's like if you had big speakers and you could play some Hans Zimmer in the background, that would be good too. But like uh, you know, it's it, you need that something to denote that something special is happening. Mm-hmm. There's something, and drums obviously have the uh, association with heartbeats and 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 other things. Like yeah. there's something very obviously old and primal about them too, because drums are probably one of the first kind of things that we had to make music. So right. that there's something very old about that. That's, you know, near fire level. <laughs> Those yeah. things go together and they have for a very long time.
1: I don't think it's an exaggeration to say music is, I think for many people, a source of meaning. Hmm. Um, indirectly, probably for everyone. I think I think Nietzsche would have said something very similar to that in, in The Birth sure. of Tragedy. Um, but it really, it, music sort of gives us a framework for how we interpret experiences and emotions in our in our life. Um, even all these memes about like the the Sig, Chad Sigma Drive memes and stuff like that, they're often accompanied with musical little ditties now from bits of those movies. Drive, in particular, mm-hmm. um, like the power of these music to give a certain ambiance and a significance to various aesthetics and various experiences is, um, fair, fairly compelling. Um, so it may be, uh, something I've been trying to do over the last year and a half or so is be a lot more careful with my playlist, <laughs> you know, uh, n- not listen to certain kinds of country music, uh, too much. Um, maybe, maybe contemporary pop stuff too. Because uh, the repetition of that does change your um, your experience of the world and your your feelings about yourself and um, it is interesting to think about the connection. I don't know if the connection between music and ritual is interesting. Mm-hmm. Between music and religion would probably take a library of books to fully explicate and explore.
0: Yeah, but I mean, there is something about controlling your environment. Um. Yeah, I, I did that experiments with that years ago with myself, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it changes your state. Uh, you know, you you can put yourself in a good mood by putting on happy music. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they, you can actually change your mood by doing that, and therefore, you know, all other kinds of things happen. Okay, if I want to, uh, like, when when I'll do cardio and I just need to do a lot of cardio because I'm cutting, um, it gets. Sometimes I go into a dumb place where I'm just like <laughs> listening to dumb music that I will not tell anyone what it is. It's just like <laughs> trashy pop music that I'm like, I just need to be happy and not think about things for like, it Just I'm just right. need to be on this treadmill for an hour, you know, yeah. whatever. And I don't care. And, uh, but obviously that's not going to produce a higher state of mind that I need to say, have a conversation like this. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, I, at, at different times, you know, I'm glad that I can also wake up with like, some Shostakovich in my head, you know, like, and have that in there as well. Or, you know, so, you know, obviously if you wake up every day and you listen to a big symphony on the way to work, you're in a different state, you you know, rather than, uh, you said kinds of country. I remember back at Waldgang, I, I had a period where I banned Irish music uh because <laughs> the sad irish music yeah the sad irish music because i'm like i'm like every song you guys are singing is about getting drunk and getting cheated cheated on by your girlfriend like that's that's not a good and country music in america is very much the same way there's a lot of like uh country music that's very sad sack stuff yeah. and i'm like if you want to live in that mental space for a long time and also i've you know like uh this is especially a thing with gay dudes uh but uh Uh, Listening to women's voices like there's there's a there's a listening to a woman's voice that you can do like, oh, that's a pretty voice. okay, or oh, that's a sexy voice or, oh, that's me. (laughs) 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 Like a lot of gay guys like over identify with the, the women singing the song. Right. And so now you have a woman's thoughts in your head. And, and, and so like, that's, yeah. that changed your psychology as well. And they, they, they identify with that and that's changed their whole brain and the way it works. Like a, they have like a woman talking in their head all the time. Um, and the same yeah. thing, I mean, I, I imagine the, if I, I don't know what to the extent gangster rap would have uh, of like putting that in your head all the time, but oh. like it might put you in a, in a different space, uh, it, as to who you are, you know?
1: yeah it, it depends on how you so much depends on how you individually relate to the song i mean to take it back to verveki for 10 seconds my right. favorite like i mean we we had a number of critical things to say about him but one of my favorite of his lectures was the oh. one about flow states
0: right um, which i i love flow really, I, actually really read, I read the book that he was referring to a yeah. few years ago
1: yeah um and that was that was a great that was a great uh lecture and i, I feel like the mark of good music is, is in terms of positive effects on you is that it brings you into a flow state. Um, I have two songs that will do that for me every time. One is Blue on Black by um, Kenny Wayne Chesney, and the other one is, um, <laughs> ironic, funnily enough, uh, doesn't remind me of anything by Audio Slave, just like I, I amusingly fitting title, but um, you know, they it puts you into a just like. Turn your mind off and, and work kind of state, and I feel like all good rituals, all good myths, whether it's in a you know a temple or a cathedral or out at Valdeng or by yourself, have to draw you out of yourself. Um, right. and they have to to draw you out of thinking about yourself and into the place where the the feelings of the song are happening. Um, there's or, this draw, great-
0: or take you into your or take you into yourself uh, I, I i think in many ways in terms of not your self-conscious self i think that's what you're talking right, about right, but, right i mean that's always what i tell guys like i mean like don't worry if you aren't singing on tune no one cares yeah. uh like that's not what it's about uh right. don't be self-conscious because yep. that'll that'll break your psychic attractions to things What you're doing but what you want to do is ideally is you're attaching to the fantasy version Uh, your own dream state right you're I mean like in the way that like when when uh in the way that when I listen to Hans Zimmer's flight that attaches me to my whole like uh you you might hate me for saying this but you you mentioned gangster rap before yeah you know was
1: probably the single most popular maybe gangster rap in, in quotation marks but rap song uh probably of all time What is that a question? I I believe it's "Lose Yourself" by Eminem. Oh yeah 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 yeah, which is about exactly this. Oh yeah, it's sure, for sure, 100%. not getting in your own way and yeah. pursuing that pursuing that ideal. Just yeah, amusingly apropos. And and I uh, I think a lot of gangster rap songs. It's a flow are, state
0: song. It it yeah,
1: it's is. not a flow state. Yeah, and a lot of like. You know there are a lot of gangster rap songs that are about getting bitches and shooting other, you know, uh, gangsters. They use other words, but um, but a lot of it is just about rhyming. It's there's songs oh, yeah. about rapping in the way that people who write novels write about people who are writers and who read. You know, because that's the sort of person who will read their books. But um, which like, is all very meta.
0: I always hate that. Like, yeah, I hate movies that are about filmmakers. Like stop yeah. it. <laughs>
1: but, yeah, but, but but rappers but rappers rapping
0: about rapping
1: feels uh i mean it has the feeling of authenticity because they're writing about what they do right. and uh but it, it gets them into it it like they end up writing about that flow state or, or moving towards it. Uh, right. it it varies i'm sure from from be- i'm not like a huge
0: rap Aficionado. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> like it, and, you know, gangster is a different, like, quotation of whatever that means. Right. But, uh, obviously, uh, you know, I, I went and I've seen Caskey now a couple times and did that interview with Caskey. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what he talks about it is his own experience, is really what he's, he's talking about in all his songs and, uh, you know, his, his struggles in life and, and whatever and his background and all this kind of thing. But also, but the genius of it is that, like, Oh my god the ability to rhyme is, yeah. is is like at a next level flow state. I he's done things that are freestyle for like a half hour. Like the, the, <laughs> like wild. Like yeah. you have to be in a different state of a different brain state entirely to be doing that and also have obviously be such a part of who you are that it can't go away. It's just there, you know. Yeah. So but I mean yeah, definitely uh virtuosity in that. But yeah, the, the flow state thing is I think obviously yeah, I, I agree is one of the better presentations of that. Like I said, I did read that book for a while and, and I think that he also made the point that uh, flow states are addictive like video games because video games put you in a flow state because right. for people who haven't listened to the lecture or don't exactly know what a flow state is, I, I mean, basically the idea is that you're doing something that is just hard enough that you keep it it, it keeps you engaged, but it's not, if it gets too easy, then you fall out of a flow state and it gets too hard, then it's just frustrating. But it Mm -hmm. just keeps you at this right state of engagement where you're solving a problem and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And it's just, you're like only thinking about that. And I mean, I I have a number of things that I do that I get into a flow state with. Obviously, everybody says jujitsu is a flow state uh, because you can't actually think. You can't actually fit fa- like you're you're thinking but at a f- at a pace slightly faster than words right like you're, you're thinking with your body and you're moving. you're like you, you have things going through your mind like i should do this kind of like this but uh it, it, you're doing all these balancing things that you can't really articulate it's like or, as tom cruise says if you think you're dead yeah yeah exactly exactly that's that's very much one um i do it with i mean video editing I can go to a flow state, I can, I can lose time. And that's one of these things that they say about a flow state is that you lose time. Like, oh, three hours went by and I didn't know that it was there because I was in the flow right. state. Uh, and, and so I've been able to do it with that. And, and a variety of other things that are like, painting used to be like that for me. I just haven't painted in a long time, but anything artistic like that, where like, this is hard, but I'm like, I, I'm i trying to get there constantly. Yeah. Like it, it, there's a space with that. So I, I really appreciate Flow states and how important they are. Yeah, and even with writing, it's like it's a rare thing for me. To, but you can get into a space where it's where you're writing and it's a like it, where it feels like it, it's kind of coming from somewhere else. But you're also solving problems at a really high speed. I, exactly. So like, you're like oh, I'm, with me, I can't rhyme. I just do alliteration. If anyone reads my writing, it's all like very alliterative. And, and Verveki
1: points out it's hard to reach these these states unless it feels like you're pursuing something that is that matters it has exactly i remember the the closest i ever came to what one might call depression mm-hmm. was i uh tried to read solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago right and i got a third of the way through that and i said i i'm not doing this anymore um but the 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 way I got out of that bad headspace because it was absolutely awful. to you, you immediately understand why Jordan Peterson is the way he is when you think about how he just reads stuff like that all the time. <laughs> um, but I, I challenged a good friend of mine to a, a debate, and I had um, like you know a, a week to prepare a bunch of arguments and put that together and. It was like that little bit of combative, friendly but combative adversarialism, like 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 sparring and martial arts, mm, yeah. um, brings you out of that headspace. You have to assemble, you have to organize your thoughts and all that, um, and that put you, put me in a very positive space. It, it cured me, uh, so to speak. Um, and so for someone like Verveki, uh, who did such an excellent job explicating flow states. I, I would be curious what his um, answer would be uh, is enlightenment is waking up and the axial revolution is that about achieving the flow state or is it about this self-awareness that, that, that seems to be associated with finding meaning and purpose that is at the same time antithetical to flow state because they he seems to be talking about both things and perhaps there's some kind of relationship. And I don't know if we're going to be able to solve this tonight, but it's one of those things, one of those instances where meaning seems to be associated with two um, mutually exclusive states in a sense, because uh, in our, in our joking conversation earlier today, you mentioned Toronto professors uh, it, as a as a category talking about buddhism and i was holding on to a joseph Campbell pun about navel gazing replacing the the, the world navel the axis mundi with our our own navels but mm-hmm. um like that that navel gazing is antithetical to the flow state you can't be in two places at the same time in terms of focus and this is one of heidegger's um who i've been exploring the past couple weeks with some seriousness um one of heidegger's big critiques of the sort of liberal way of thinking Mm. and scientism is that they identified all that can be known scientifically and generally with its present what is present to us what presents itself in the positive sense um and there there's what what creates our consciousness is actually um, th- there's a, there's a negative space in consciousness. We are, we are, we recognize what isn't there. When we see only one side of a cup, you know, it, we're not seeing a two dimensional object. Our consciousness is filling in that gap because the, our, we are consciously aware of what is not there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, but if we are, if we turn our consciousness in on itself and, and focus on consciousness. First of all, you can never be fully conscious of your own consciousness because that would require an infinite regress of dividing your focus. Um, but like if you focus on your own mind, the observer, you can't be present to the world or the world can't be present to you. And so there is a, there is an opposition between the kind of mindfulness this kind of uh constant focus on the self that you see with like mindfulness meditation buddhist types um and and all other kinds of deep i I might be guilty of this to a slight degree um of you thinking about thinking and thinking about religious thought and philosophy
0: versus actually um being aware in the world um well, maybe the awakening is once you get there, then you can go. Uh, you know, in terms of like, like, uh, like, what, yep. it, it, like, uh, in in the way that you said, like, if you have a source of meaning that you're going to, then you can get into a flow state. Like, you you're, you're doing meaningful action. You have to know what meaningful action is yeah. to get into a flow state. So, I mean, like, uh, in the sense of like, uh, he might have a good answer to that. I I would want to ask him the question because yeah. there might be some
1: relationship between those two things. Yeah, but there there does seem to be a difference in. B- between the because he talks a lot about the like we talked about before this axial age. The axial age is not just Buddha, it's not just Jesus, it's not just Socrates. It's this whole host of different people that Carl Jaspers talking about uh, creating religious traditions and philosophies that look inward in this way. And um the the pre-axial mode of thinking. Uh my wife and I were just reading the Hobbit. Um I, I know we're going a little over on time, but um well, no we don't uh, we don't have one on this one. we can go oh cool. On. okay uh, yeah, yeah, there's no cut. Uh, <laughs> okay. but, yeah but well, we were, we we're reading the Hobbit and the descript- Gandalf is this this wise wizard. but his his wisdom comes from wandering all over the place, going to find things out. He's is, he is he's just aware of what is going on around him in the world. And the elves are wise in the same way too. they, they know who's coming and going through their forest before the people have even like arrived there. And th- that kind of wisdom of knowing things in your surroundings and knowing what's going on around you in the world is fundamentally a different kind of knowledge and a different idea of wisdom than the wisdom that we have come to associate with, like knowing transcendent truths, knowing like categorical truths to borrow some Kantian thing, thought or, or like, you know, Aristotelian logic, things that are always true no matter what, at least within the confines of language, but which seem to be associated with, you know, head in the clouds, thank you Aristophanes, um, you know, academic ivory tower types who seem to know a lot, uh, but don't know a lot at the same time.
0: Well, you know, that's, that's something that he says, which is kind of amusing. I guess it depends who you are. Uh, and uh, what your viewpoints and ideology are, because we could say this about anyone, really. But he, he's saying that like there's a difference between foolishness and, and and ignorance. I believe is the way you put it. Is there ignorance and foolishness, and that uh, you know they're not exactly the same thing. Is that you can know, you can have a lot of knowledge and still be very foolish, because he was saying right. the same the same processes that allow us to uh, gain knowledge are the same process that you know. The, our adaptability is the same thing that uh, can, uh, you know, the same machinery that makes us allow to be foolish. Which you see that in obviously smart people who believe really, Sam Harris, uh <laughs> phenomenally <laughs> smart individual, like it, a lot of foolishness. But that's just because we disagree with him uh you know, <laughs> you know like the, the same thing could be yeah, said there isn't actually another definition for foolish oh. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, really i mean like uh it, foolish to you you know like with yeah. without being completely relative i think that I, I think that maybe uh we can jump back to this in a second but uh, like our view of foolishness uh maybe or, or the solo idealist version would be like you know obviously uh I always say best practices there are best practices and best practices tend to align with human nature and just the reality of being human. And that doesn't mean they're hard and fast rules that you can never do this. You can uh, like, but for most people, most of the time, this one, this path is going to work better than this path in the way that you see foolishness is that, you know, like the first thing came to mind because, you know, because it's a cliche is that, you know, like, uh, dudes go to boot camp and immediately buy a Mustang and get married <laughs> and it's foolishness <laughs> Yeah, you know, because everybody knows that's not a good idea, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, but if it's a pattern of, of, of silliness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pattern of foolishness, but like, uh, uh, you know, it's just something that they fell into it. It's not because they're dumb, you know, like they're not any dumber than anybody else. I mean, uh, uh, it, but it's just a matter of, you know, like, that's just something that happens. And, uh, and, and we can sit as uh, maybe people who are a little older and be like, oh, that's, that's foolish, <laughs> you yeah. know? And, but for some of them, it worked, you know, like for maybe 5% of them, like they're still with that girl and they still, then they drove that Mustang into the ground, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, it's, it, it, and so it's not always going to be wrong. It's just usually wrong. I, I like thinking of it
1: in terms of poker hands. Like if you get, if you get a two seven and you decide to fold before the flop, like that is a wise call. And if the flop comes down to two seven, that didn't make your move dumb. It just meant like a little unlucky. And this is a, a point that I, I probably referenced him too much now, but Scott Adams makes about the, the difference between a correct decision and a smart decision. Not every smart decision winds up being correct, and you see this a lot in finance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Really, really wealthy people make mistakes all the time, and they make them with tremendous confidence
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because they don't—they understand that they don't need to be right every time. They just need to be right a little bit more often than they're wrong, and that, like, that's fine. Now, the stakes aren't like that in every case. You know, you don't want to go into marriage maybe uh, that way. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, you know, understanding the difference between a high stakes and a low stakes choice and the context surrounding what constitutes a high stakes and low stakes choice. Um, you know, that that's also maybe part of wisdom. Um, and or or foolishness as the case may be.
0: Yeah, another example that I have of wizards and fools just, and then we'll kind of get into. I want to talk about a little bit about the the axial revolution or whatever, and then we'll kind of wrap. Oh yes, yes. Yes. Just to make sure we people understand what the hell we're talking about. Stay moderately on subject. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, that's that. Like I said, this is just a a great jumping off point because there's so many topics of the discussion that is going on. So uh, who knows what we'll do next time we'll bounce off of. But this is a good. It's it's a good to have questions to try and answer. And that's kind of what he left us. But one of the jokes, uh, you know, I, I shared with you was obviously he he talked about science as being a method of distinguishing causal patterns from correlational you know, patterns, and basically like that's you know how you fix foolishness to a certain extent. Like uh, you don't don't just because things can correlate doesn't mean that they caused each other. Right. And then in the same like breath, cited uh, Stephen Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature, saying that crime has gone down and I'm like, that's, that is actually all your personal prejudice and bias <laughs> so like, because you could say, well, like, cause I, it was, it was just fun for me because I went and, uh, it's fun for me because it's, uh, I actually went to that lecture, like when Stephen Pinker presented better Angels of our nature, because I was a Stephen Pinker fan from the blank slate, which is a big part of my whole awakening. <laughs> it's uh, good but, book, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great, but It's a really important book. Um, but I went to that lecture and I came up with him. Like, who are you trying to please, uh, who are you trying to convince that like crime? It's like, well, the obvious thing was, well, crime is going down statistically because of the authoritarian society, because of like all these other, the, the violence is just moving into other hands, right? Like, oh, you're filling up prisons. (laughs) <laughs> the crowd is going down, but you're filling up prisons and everybody's being under su- everyone's under surveillance. So they're terrified to create a crime because you have militar- militarized police. Right.
1: Oh, and we we have been, less violent, you know. What Den- Dennis Pamir says, is this live or a premiere? It is live. Yes. And Ed says he likes the, the Sanskrit word for flow state, Ika grata, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Yeah, I wouldn't even try to pronounce that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, we that. will, we will take questions from the chat, Dennis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we will definitely do that. Um, There's a uh, another guy though. Like um, Stephen Pinker is pretty talented with statistics, although there are complaints to be had with statistics as a as a thing. Um, but uh, we could go to Thomas Carlyle, perhaps another day. But um, there are other people who are equally statistically talented who will look at the data on crime and say, well, "What's happening isn't crime going down." It's medical technology and sophistication going dramatically up, and right. a lot of things that would have been murders wind up just being assault um, instead because our medical, you know, professionals are, are a lot better at saving people than they were forty years ago.
0: That's that's another factor too. It's like a, or like I said, like the psyop of like uh, uh, what I've been watching at bedtime for years and years, uh, whatever. <laughs> Uh, the true crime stuff or the the CSI stuff, you know, like the, where you, uh, forensic files, uh, you know, like where you're like, oh my God, I, someone left like a nose hair on a blanket in there. Now they're in jail. Like I can't do anything. You know, <laughs> like you know, the, 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 the the psyop of that is, has probably prevented a huge amount of crime. You know, like, uh, it, and because no one's going to report all the things that the pre- police don't ever solve, <laughs> right. you know, or that's just. Yeah, we didn't have the resources. We didn't look into it, whatever.
1: Which in Seattle has reached two thirds. Um Right. Yeah. But so I, I, yeah. I can't remember if it was uh North Korea or if it was another country, but there are countries in the world that have a zero percent unsolved crime rate. Unsolved mm-hmm. murder rate, I should say so um they just
0: someone to decide that they're guilty is that like <laughs> I,
1: I don't know the precise mechanism but if we're going to follow the statistics yeah for an enlightened society yeah. um we perhaps should be looking for north to north korea or it might have been saudi arabia <laughs> i can't remember uh, <laughs> statistics still gotta follow the data right
0: yeah yeah d- d- follow science yeah. yeah like that's where the science is so yeah. but uh so anyway now that we kind of like I just had to go on to that one because it was so it was like obviously a prejudice like everything's getting better no it's fine um it was what are the normalcy bias uh you know a certain extent and also that progressive arc of history like everything's moving towards the the final point which then gets into the, all the stuff that we've been talking about we don't need to go into gnosticism uh, but, yeah, but uh and all that evil but one of the things that he brought out um the, the, the scale of what he was talking about is sort of like the Neolithic Re- Re- Revolution, obviously, um, was agriculture and living with larger groups of people. And that transformed humanity in one way. And then he talked about the Bronze Age. And there's also a bias there in the sense that he said like, which I thought was hilarious. He was like, well, we don't read Bronze Age material um, anymore because it's not relatable, uh, because our brains don't work that way. And I was like, all of the required reading for, for the, the order of fire is pre axial revolution. Cause he's talking about the axial revolution being like 800 to 300 BC. And, uh, you know, it, it said, obviously it created alphabetic literacy is the difference in, in the second order thinking, which we'll get to in a second. But, uh, the idea that Bronze Age material is unrelatable. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big bias, because uh, that's yeah. I mean, uh, Epic well, of Gilgamesh well, is just, phenomenally so. relatable. It's the easiest. Whenever, whenever I, I introduce the material to people, it's the oldest story in the world. I'm like, that's the easiest story to like. That's easy to read. You know, it's like, oh, a man went on a journey to, you know, like it, like oh, you know, like man was creating trouble they tried to find a find a friend to, to like it was, everything that happens is completely relatable and, and he, he wanted to find a journey to, to see if he could conquer death. It's the most relatable story I can imagine <laughs> you know so it was just very strange but I think it was a prejudice in terms of like how you know urban liberals and, and institutions think rather than right. like how uh, I mean I think people think and, well, and people still think the same way.
1: It's a, it's a funny kind of, there's there's a risk, I should say, of a, of a funny kind of circularity where, you know, when I read the Iliad, it feels extremely relatable. At least a lot of the emotions for for certain characters feel extremely relatable, right. um, especially as a younger man. You know, as, as I've gotten into my 30s, the Odyssey feels a little bit more, like, correct. And the, the Iliad strikes me as very much a young man's story. But... Um, both of them are 800, 900 BC. So, uh, both of them are in that bronze age, right on the cusp of this axial thing, period. And, um, you know, if, if the stories are what give, are, are what set us in the world. Yeah. And if we changed at some point from Homer to, for instance, the Bible, Mm -hmm. and we've, you know, maybe, maybe just marinate in that for 2000 years and then we go back and read stories from you know prior to that from outside of our domain it might seem unrelatable because they're outside of the (laughs) of the the social values we've been stewing in um but you could say the exactly the same thing about relatively contemporary literature very much post-axial you know within the last couple hundred years from another society say China say Latin America if you want a real acid trip in the literary world go out and check the the magical realism stories from Latin America um like the very old man with enormous wings um and and there's some some just wild weird stories that are extremely hard to relate to um from within the last few decades, you know, but, but take place from outside of our cultural context. I think for many people, these bronze age stories are not just relatable, but are in fact, relatable to a very, very wide, uh, ranging audience, um, almost to a universal degree, maybe not quite, but, um, in many ways, much closer to it than some of the stories advanced, um, you know, pushed by like, I don't know, Disney or or someone today.
0: Right. Well, 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 again, because they're they're very much out of sync with human nature rather than like, I think that, uh, you know, uh, this older way of thinking hasn't gone. I mean, I think he would, uh, uh, we're not that different than we were in the Bronze Age or even before that. No, we're not. You know, and so like, that's, there's still the same concerns, like the same concerns, I mean, stuff that's underpinned my work for the entire time uh, in terms of, you know, well, violence still runs everything. You know, they try, (laughs) if you think it don't, I can tell you how to find out, (laughs) you know, I can
1: can send you some drone footage. from Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 That's that's how things run. Like the answer to the question or else what, uh we'll co- or else what will come around uh like yeah. if you, you push enough buttons it's it's coming uh and it's the same it's the same thing it's the same concern that I've always had uh, violence is always there um and it's it, i mean he talked a lot about uh, the actual, uh, the second order of thinking and again this is the thing uh, the uh buddhist uh take on it was that uh, you know undisciplined thinking leads to violence and i'm like There's been a lot of wars since second order thinking became a thing. A lot of extreme ultra violent. We we thought of cool way cooler violence in the next in the last that we came up with the atom bomb. (laughs) What's the scariest army?
1: The like discipline has been a military virtue for thousands of years. One of the most horrifying military stories. Yeah. uh, Is is also i think the most extreme example of discipline so you know, the the meme has become you know guys are always thinking about the roman empire um but the roman uh, like the violence in the west and the violence surrounding the rise and fall of rome was nothing compared to the violence of china if you look at like the biggest battles in history china holds like eight out of ten of them that just like hundreds of thousands of men slaughtered in like hours like multiple times but there was a there was a story of a battle and i can't remember where i read or heard this from of um a chinese general who was going up against an army he was worried about and stop me if i've told this story before but he he came up with a strategy and he went to some prisoners he had um and he said look Uh, You guys can sit and rot here, or you can do a special act for me. And if you do this special military mission, I'll take care of all your families for the rest of their lives. And some number of them agreed. So the next day, the two armies are lining up and this one Chinese general, his first rank of soldiers on command, march forward towards the enemy, stop within a few paces, draw their swords and all in unison, slit their own throats. And he then proceeded to route the other team the other side because they were so horrified it's not just the horror of that kind of inhuman self-destruction but the discipline it demonstrates is terrifying i mean that is a machine that will not stop yeah you know so like like that that level of discipline has always been i mean that's what why they do military parades and all these other uh marching demonstrations is to show off their discipline yeah um and and the idea that undisciplined thinking leads to violence is like that that feels like a very Socratic view it feels yeah. like a very um idealistic it, 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 and and presumptuous view
0: yeah yeah well if we were all just enlightened then we wouldn't have violence right I mean that's like right. we, we reached enlightenment Uh <laughs> That's why I said I feel like the the enlightenment thing, you know, to the extent that you know whether he where he takes enlightenment a meeting I don't know. I'm I'm pretty convinced that I don't need to go to see the end of the tunnel there. I know where I feel like I know where it's going, at this point uh, with his yeah. stuff. Uh, but um, you know, like like I said, lots of good jumping off points there. I'm not allowed to
1: mention blood feuds yet, am I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're holding off on that. Save it. Uh, save it now, because we're going to do. Uh, I mean, I guess we probably re- reached the end of a, a, a cycle here, so maybe we maybe should do that. Uh, but uh, I wanted to tell everybody that we are going to release a book, including some new essays. One that is what he's talking about is a is a uh, really a long essay that he's struggling to finish. Uh, completely <laughs> uh, about uh, about some of the philosophy that we're we're talking about here, um, and uh, blood feuds is a part of it. And then uh, you know, I'm I'm going to bounce off of that a little bit and talk about. Uh, you know, we don't want to call it humanism because that has a whole like color of its own, but uh, more a more human approach to certain things. And that's kind of why I'm reading up about human universals and so forth. Uh, what where what would we th- say wisdom? come from if you're going to build a wise society that was in in uh, or a wise philosophy that was it, it, part of the wisdom should be that it, it is in harmony with human nature and not against it because as you mentioned the gods of the copybook cuttings uh, they keep coming around <laughs> you know so there are certain things you can only push so far and uh, that's that's one of the things that so we we have we're going to be putting out a book uh, uh, put there. Book, So we're going to do a try and do a book every year. And it's already, it's going to be a nice 200 or so page book, easily full of uh, poetry and things that some of our members have written. And um, also some of these essays that we're working on, some new and some old, uh, some of the, have been posted online already. And, uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's what we have coming up. And uh, we're going to do this show every week uh, for a while and see how it goes. Uh, I think I'm excited about it because I think we have a lot. We can just unpack tons and tons of stuff, and I think uh, you know this is it's going well so far, and I think it'll go it'll go even better uh, as I get the technology figured out. But I think I did okay. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and uh, I wanted to let everybody know also that uh, the order of fire, uh, we are accepting applications right now. Um, it's a good time to say how that works. Uh, basically, uh, you know, we're just filtering for a few things. Really make sure you get, you're on the same page. We want some people who have read who have read Fire in the Dark, uh, so they know what it is, so they know what we're doing and, and what we're about. Um, it's not we're not gonna like uh, make you rich or, or sell you how to get laid or anything like that. That's not what it's about. It's not like a it's not a service. Uh it's being part of a group. So it's we consider them more like dues. Uh the there's a monthly fee just so that I can afford to do this. And uh basically and and to afford to produce things like this and to yeah. Hopefully, produce a lot more. Uh, it's, it's, so it's you're kind of uh, putting in for uh, to be part of this and help it move forward. And uh, otherwise than that, we have a uh, a, you know, a private social network, and uh, and we have groups that have meetings. Uh, we're getting a pretty good group in Florida now. Uh, you know, and we have one in Australia, and we have you know it's, it just depends where the people apply from. But we have a lot of a lot of really cool guys. We have a, we have a really interesting collection of guys. My applications so far this month have been like all really neat guys from very different walks of life. So if you're interested in that, we're going to keep accepting applications until I think I said, uh, January 20th. Uh, so, uh, if you want to sign up, uh, or you have any questions, you can contact me in any variety of ways. But, uh, anyway, do you have any uh, final thoughts on this? Do you want to get out? Well, on the, on the, I
1: I do have to, to leave and go pack for, for a trip this weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, right after this but on on the subject of the of the order and and people joining you know it it seems like so many of the groups out there are you know pitching to guys like to learn how to get laid or to make tons of money and so forth but there's this funny pattern someone asked andrew tate in an interview he's like is there anyone you envy and he at first his first answer was no, uh, everyone envies me. Every, every guy wants the things that I have. Everyone, And then he paused for a second and he says, there's one kind of guy that I, that I envy. And that's the guy who genuinely doesn't want these things. And it's like, a lot of guys will say that they don't, but they actually do and they're just lying. But there's a few guys who genuinely don't uh, want these things. I'm envious of him. Okay. And he, it falls into a pattern of guys who achieve great wealth only to realize they wish they'd become like philosophers. <laughs> right. uh, another one is George Soros as mm-hmm. uh, a funny one. Um, yeah. you know, it, it, tremendous financial wealth and power and influence and now he seems to be on a mission to literally destroy the world, to prove his philosophical theory of reflexivity, like, <laughs> like that, that seems to be this, this is like really, some deep Doctor Evil shit. But like, yeah. but but like, but like, but see, I'm right. right. Like, like he really, really, really wants to to right. be. Uh, and then, and then you read the philosophers, and a lot of these philosophers, like like Nietzsche and maybe Socrates in his last few days, reveal maybe it would have been better to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And of course there's nothing that artists want more than just a little bit more money than <laughs> the <Right. laughs> star here. So it's like the, the cool thing about the order, as opposed to many of these other groups is it really does feel like we have a little bit of everything there. We do yeah. have guys who are interested in finance and money. We do have guys who are like really, really talented in the f- uh, physical domain mm-hmm. and you can nerd out with us and philosophy and religion, uh, or instead, uh, do art and painting and poetry. Like we have, we have like, like a group that has a for a marine raider who does paintings. Like is is like what other groups do you do that? And and you can skip all the grass is always greener stuff. And let's let's just live a balanced life with balanced virtue and join a group that facilitates that kind of balance, which which seems the better than going ex- extreme down one rabbit hole and I know what there's like there's a kind of aesthetic to extremity to push yourself all the way man but um yeah. the guys who do that seem to end up with this grass is always greener uh, <laughs> effect so that that would be my pitch for for the order as a it it really does have some of the best of all of that and there's nothing to stop you from doing a little bit of everything and trying to do I mean the whole reason i got into the trades and became an electrician and you take my journeyman test later this year um is because i didn't want to be that guy who's just an ivory tower head in the clouds can't do anything with their hands character um and you you do make more money as an electrician than you do as a professor generally speaking which is also nice um but uh yeah like that that balance is is maybe more mature just like Pursuing solar things, I think, is maybe more mature than than the like black metal punk stuff. As fun as it is for, yeah. for a time. But um sure. uh, it's it's better to to do the solar stuff in the long run. It's it's wiser, less foolish, perhaps.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> best, best practices. Best, best practices. <laughs> yes. 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 Cool, all right. Well, it's been a good good one. We'll do it again next week. We have to think about what to talk about. Uh, we are all obviously. Uh, would also take requests. Uh, if people have ideas, we will consider yeah. requests. I won't take requests, so we'll consider requests. Uh, yeah. If you have ideas for what you think uh, we should h- tackle next or down the road, uh, maybe it's something that takes a little bit more research. Uh, we'll look into it. Uh, or you know, we're obviously all p- open to answering more questions than we had to time too. So we're not a lot of people know we're doing this yet, so we're just figuring it out, uh, feel our way through it. But uh, we can do all questions sometimes too. So that's all. It's all good. Uh, thank you. All you guys for joining us and uh, listening along and, and with us. And uh, anyway, man, stay solar. Stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.